Greetings, my name is Zena Rose and welcome to the Manila Rose podcast. For season one, we are focusing on race relations and its correlation to how women of color are sexualized in America. On our last episode, we interviewed Dr. Morgan Gerald on race relations and its connection to how black women in the United States are sexualized. On today's episode, we'll investigate race relations and the sexualization of Latinas. The Spicy Latina, a character we see often portrayed in our media. Clad in skin-tight clothing or barely any clothing at all, sauntering around in high heels with a very thick accent. It is an image we see consistently resurface time and time again. But what happens when you're not that? What are the challenges of trying to embrace your culture while also trying to fit in here? Why is a Latina speaking Spanish so hypersexualized in our society? Stay tuned as we investigate the answers to these questions and more. To discuss the implications of being Latina in America concerning race relations, we have journalist Maria Jimenez Moya. Maria is a journalist, activist, and international relations analyst. She has written articles for the Daily Press, Dick Boston, and the Cambridge Chronicle, as well as having done research for the New York Times. Recently, she's been featured on That's Rough Podcast, and she's our creative director. Thank you so much for joining us today, Maria. Of course, thank you so much for having me. You know I love being here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what were race relations like for you coming from Mexico to the U.S.? Well, um, I came from Mexico City. I was born and raised there all the way up to the age of 14. And that's when I moved to Houston, Texas. Um, so actually, Houston is considered the most diverse city in America, like even more than New York. We're ranked number one. Um, and my experience with immigrating was very different versus what the majority of Mexicans experience because I did everything legally and I come from a family that is well off. Um, so we were able to not go through all the struggles that other people go through. Uh, so race relations when I came here first was uh, obviously picking up like the English, learning it, learning how to communicate, learning like the moral norms, you know, the in Mexico, we greet each other with a kiss on the cheek. We don't do that here in the United States. That's, you know, I've never like seen anybody like, unless you're like close friends with the person, I don't really see that happening. Um, so it was definitely an adjustment to happen. Like culture shock was really real when I came and getting used to the customs here and how everybody was operating. Um, as well, well, in terms of race relations, of course, you're gonna have a, a barrier when you're dating somebody that is from a different ethnicity. And I feel like that's unavoidable. Um, and as much as you can both try to be sympathetic and relate to each other and kind of learn from each other, um, you know, there's still gonna be some differences there. So for me, that was like the, the, the main issue uh, because I, when I first came here, I decided to date a white boy. And it was so ironic because I went to an international high school where nobody was white. Everybody was from all over the world. And then the, the one white boy in my whole grade, I was like, that one, we're gonna date that one. Um, <laughs> so it was definitely like an adjustment for me and in also like friendships, you know, I, I am very lucky. I am still super close with my friends from high school that I first met when I came. And it was all about like learning from each other, uh, me showing them my culture and then showing me their culture and kind of helping each other grow in that sense. And I feel like when you are able to have that conversation with somebody of like, this is how we do it in my country and you show me how you do it in yours, 
you're actually enriching each other's perspective and getting rid of ignorance. So what we see a lot nowadays in race relations is that these topics that are supposed to be conversations turn into arguments. And by arguing, you're not learning from each other, you're just turning each other apart. So that's that's been my experience with race relationships here in the US. Yeah, absolutely. Everything always has to be like traced back to like politics or always becomes exactly. personal like real quick here. Exactly. Everything has become so political. So, you know, even saying your opinion, if you like a food or you don't like a food or, you know, everything's become political and people, like I said, I think that people are not listening to each other anymore. Um, so an example I'll give is, is my best friend, one of my best friends, she's Spanish and I'm Mexican. And at first there was a little bit of a hard concept to write my, my mind around. Cause I was like, oh my God, like her people oppress my people for like thousands of years, you know? Um, and then like, she's Republican and I'm a Democrat. So like that, that's also been like an interesting thing to manage like now that we're both adults and being able to surpass that. And I do have friends that are like, oh, like your best friend's Republican. Like, how does that work? Like, how do you manage that? I'm like, she's still a person, <laughs> you know? And, and she's been my best friend since we were 14. So, you know, because we think different politically, we're not gonna insult each other about it. There's a lot of things that she believes that I don't, and there's a lot of things that I believe that she doesn't. And we can intellectually talk about it and our viewpoints and learn from each other. But it again, it's a conversation, not a discussion and not a fight. So it's about learning from each other, not about turning each other apart, which I think has been completely distorted nowadays. Yeah, especially with like, I feel social media platforms, it's so easy to turn things into an argument, even if it's just like, a harmless like comment or a video or a photo it's like it turns into arguments so fast it's like outrageous to me <laughs> exactly and that comes from this concept that we call it violent porn or atrocity porn uh in the journalism community and that just means when we get so indulged in this like fights and vicious content that we can't stop watching it and we keep repeating it over and over again that it like completely invades our feed and by doing that, it completely negates the original the original message of what the person was trying to say. Um, uh, so unfortunately, we see this happening over and over and over again. And something that is supposed to be advocacy turns into people using it as a fake woke card. So rather than really understanding the deep of how deep the issue is, it just becomes a trend. You know, so like that, like completely dehumanizes the main point of whatever the initial intention was. Wow, that's interesting right there. It detracts from it. Yeah. It so, so we're like oversaturating it to the point that it loses its intention, right? Um, I would say so. I would say that there's a difference between like sharing something on social media for cloud Mm -hmm. versus doing something on social media because you're really understanding the issue at the end of the day we can all click a share button so i'm gonna bring black lives matter into this so with black lives matter it became a huge huge social media trend right we were all seeing it it wasn't been in our feeds mm -hmm. but what i want to actually know is how many of those people opened their wallets and donated to these causes or right. how many of those people actually read what the post said or mm -hmm. when you research what was actually happening rather than just clicking share. Clicking share is easy, we can all do it. 
but I want to know for how many actually took the time to educate themselves, how many actually took the time to give money to these organizations, how many actually took the time to make the change that needs to happen, rather than just clicking share. And there's a very big, um, he's Nigerian American author. Um, his last name is Onebuchi. I'm, okay, I'm blanking on his first name. Uh, I can pull it up really quickly, but he wrote a very good piece. Uh, Tony Onebuchi, that's his name. Tochi, Tochi Onebuchi, uh, Tochi, sorry. And he wrote a very, he's an American author. He writes a lot of uh, Afrofuturism. And he wrote this very interesting piece that talked about it, about how like there was a complete dehumanization when all of these videos of black people getting murdered became shared and shared over and over again on social media. Wow, that's a good point right there. Wow. I like that you brought that up because yeah, that was such like a such a huge thing in race relations was like right. mm -hmm. everything got tense and then people thought they were helping. But yeah, that's amazing. So, I think that like people's hearts are in the right place. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I think that anybody that wants to learn more and anybody that is advocating for a community other than their own, that is huge and that is super important. So I don't, I don't want to discourage that at all. But I just want to encourage people to actually learn about it rather than just click and share. Because click and share, we can all do it. Yeah, absolutely. But click and share is not going to change anything. It's actually learning and making a change in yourself first uh, and educating others. But to educate others, you have to educate yourself first. You know, And I think that the reason in race relations why we have to go to such extremes is because we, we don't listen to each other. Um, we don't, we're not listening to each other's struggles. We're not listening to each other's pain. We're not... You know, especially when communicating with the, with the white community, all these concepts are very hard for them to understand. Um, there is no, no doubt about it. Um, so it's hard to, you know, how do you explain racism to a white person that has never experienced it? You know, you right. can explain as much as you want, but at the end of the day, they won't be able to fully understand it or comprehend it, you know? So mm -hmm. when like, I'm very white passing, I'll never understand the depths of racism for somebody who's not. Um, mm -hmm. So all you can really do is like educate yourself and try to sympathize as much as you can. So there was this really good slogan that I like that said, I understand that I'll never understand, but with you, I stand. Oh, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was super clever and it hit it right on, right, right on the nail, uh, what it had to be said. Yeah. Uh, so with resolutions, I think that the reason why we go to extremes, we're not hearing each other. So it's either you're not listening to me when we're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation and I'm being calm. So I need to explode and make a big show for you to actually understand my point. And that's what just causes even more conflict between all of us, but it's either nothing happens at all or we go to such extremes. Yeah, the extreme. Yeah, it's not in the middle, it seems like anymore. Yeah, exactly. It's. I mean, I think it could be in the middle, but it all comes with, with the mindset and the that willingness to to learn, like uh, when somebody's like, I'm not racist, I'm like, no, that's wrong. We're all racist. Like we're all racist. I'll be the first one to say I am racist because if you don't identify the problem to be, begin with, how can you fix it, you know? So it's yeah. understanding and making first the self-reflection move of, oh, okay, I do have race bias, we all do. Mm -hmm. I am racist, we are all racist, you know? But it's what am I gonna do to change that? And what am I gonna do to educate myself on it? Right. Because if you are saying you're not racist, you're negating the problem and you cannot even start addressing it and fixing it. 
That's true. Yeah, you're just rejecting it. Exactly. You're rejecting it. You're not doing the introspective look and reflection that you need to do in order to make a change in society. And I think that people just say like, oh, I'm not racist, all of this. That is just ignorance. And with ignorance, we're not going to fix anything. Yeah, absolutely. Those are some really great points. Um, how are Latinas sexualized differently than other races? I think that, well, Latinas are actually um, seven times more likely than any other race to appear nude or partially nude in any medium that includes like magazines, TV, uh, movies, all of that. So I think that Latinas do is to be more sexy, more hot-headed, uh, more sexualized. I mean, all, all races are sexualized to some extent, you know, uh, but with Latinas, it is more like, this on button that you have seven and all of this ideology like first started with um if we look at the miss universe contest that i believe now it's been eradicated but latin america has the most crowns than any other region i think venezuela is the one with the most crowns in the world so it first started with that with like latin american women being always acknowledged as beautiful um and then there has been stereotypes that are presented throughout Western television. So Sofia Vergara, um, you know, she's a, she's a good representation for the Latinx community, but at the end of the day, she's always presented as a trophy white with super tight dresses. And this is a, a role that a lot of Latinx women play in TV, especially when it's a Western TV show. Um, there's actually been a lot of good uh, feedback with Jane the Virgin where the main character um, portrayed what an actual Latina would be like, look like we're all not sexual all the time, we're all not hot all the time, and we're all not, you know, we don't, not all of us have these like crazy, curvaceous bodies um, that we have. So I think that with Latinas, it comes with the expectations that you're gonna be sexual all the time. Yeah, I like that you brought up the Jane the Virgin right there. Cause that, that was the thing where people were talking about how she's kind of like the, and I think you said this, uh, the Jane Doe of like Hispanic culture right now. Yeah, mm -hmm. she is. I, I personally have not watched Ginger Virgin, but throughout all my research, I've encountered that people really agree with that representation uh, that Jane, I believe her name is, is it Jenny Rodriguez? Um, that she portrays in that TV show. Interesting, okay. Um, can you elaborate on the chicken sandwich analogy you have written about? Okay, so for sure. So chicken sandwich was a monologue that I did for the Johnny Kebab podcast while I was in college at Boston University. And it comes from this idea, uh, well, Johnny Kebab, to give some background, is there's the vagina monologues we've, we've all heard about. Um, and then there was this idea that the vagina monologues was very white feminism. So white feminism, um, to explain it clearly, we all hear all the time that men are paid $1 compared to 75 cents that woman, right? That's a standard statistics that we all kind of know by heart by now. Um, and that is white feminism because it is 75 cents compared to a white woman. If we look at black women, and Latino women, they're gonna be making less than 75 cents, right? 
So is this idea that the feminism that we're taught and that we now encounter is so centered towards white females, so white feminism. We don't hear, oh, men are paid $1 compared to 25 cents that a Latino woman makes. We always hear men are paid $1 compared to 75 cents. So that is white feminism. Um, so Johnny, Ke Johnny Kebab came in as this sister play to the vagina monologues to be able to show intersectionality feminism of women of color and not just white feminism. Um, so when, when Chicken Sandwich came to be, I had to write a monologue um, for it. And I, it was my audition and I, I was like, I wanna be part of this, but I'm not really sure what, what to talk about um, or what to do, right? So I just kept thinking about my time in Texas. I kept thinking about like my experience with dating, my experience with being a minority in the US, my experience of being Latina in the US. And chicken sandwich came to be because I've been so many times referred to as spicy over and over again uh, throughout you know, my life here in the United States. So you know, for me, I was a spicy, I think that that's a little bit like dehumanizing because it's, you know, bringing me down to like a spice, bringing me down to food, bringing me down to like something that is meant to be consumed. Um, and with spicy also, it is, it is an adjective that we constantly hear to describe Latinx women, but in reality, a lot of other cultures have spicy food, not just Latinx women. So I was like, why is it that only Latinx women are being called spicy? not all of these other cultures that also have spicy food and spice, you know, they mm -hmm. consume spice on that regularly. So most foods are even spicier than whatever we consume in Mexico. Um, so I always thought that that was interesting and that I was invalidating all the other cultures as well. So chicken sandwich came from my time of, you know, being in Texas and being described as spicy. And I was like, the only thing that I ever call spicy is a chicken sandwich. So that's how chicken sandwich came to be. And that's why I called the monologue that, um, because in that monologue, I talk about my experience of dating and living in the US and, and uh, you know, exotification and racism. And I, I have this line that it says, stop calling me spicy because I'm not a chicken sandwich. Uh, and that's how it came to be. Yeah, I love it. I love it when you explain it. I like to hear you talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, is there a difference between being sexualized versus exotified concerning race? Yes, I do think so. I think that as a woman, we're all sexualized. No matter what we do, no matter what we're wearing, uh, no matter where we're at, <laughs> we're always going to be sexualized. And I think exotified, it comes down where you are just being attracted because of your race. Um, so everything else does not matter. So I, I, like I always mention is people are like, oh, like you're so hot, like your accent is so hot. Uh, and I'm like, okay, but will you still find me attractive if I had an accent from Georgia or if I had an accent from Ohio or, you know? So I'm like, would it, like, what is that about? Are you finding me attractive because my accent is something different from you? would you still find me appealing if I wasn't Mexican? So I think that with exoticism, it, it comes down where the only thing that is attractive about you is your race, not everything else, not everything else that makes you you, not who you are. Like I said, I'm very white passing. I could be the average white chick next door. 
any day of the week. Um, but somehow when I hear my accent, it's like, oh, it's a pleasant surprise. Um, you know, not being American tends to be a pleasant surprise. So that's why I think is the difference between exotification and sexualization. Exotification, if we look back, the word exotic means different from, it means from a foreign land. That's what exotic means. That's when exotic was first invented. Um, so something exotic is something different, something that is not from there. Uh, so that's the difference between sexualization and exotification. Sexualization, we all experience it. Exotification is when you're reduced down to your race and that's why you're attracted. You're not attracted because of who you are. You're attracted because of your race and what your race represents for them. Because it's not even what your race represents to you, it's what your race is representing for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for breaking that down. I always love your explanation because you always cut it down cleanly with your explanations. <laughs> you know, I understand that these are concepts that are not usually talked about. Um, so I try to, to make it easier for you guys to understand. Yeah, no, because I, I feel like when we talk about sexualization, zotification, fetishization, I feel like when we talk about it, they're usually all lumped together. So it's right. kind of my mission for, for us to break it apart and say that, okay, they're different. Like, this is why. So your explanation, I always love hearing you talk about it. <laughs> um, what can people and allies do to stop the perpetuation of sexualizing Latinas and improve race relations in our country? Well, uh, I always make this argument and I stand by it that be, behind every successful Latinx woman, there was a white person that said yes. Um, and I stand by it so much because why was I allowed to get a college education? Because somebody on the admissions board that was probably white said yes to me. Um, why do I have the job that I have? Because somebody that read my work was white said yes to me uh and i think that's an ideology that we see throughout like uh, i think it was there was a very famous nfl player i'm blanking on the name right now um i believe that it might have been michael jordan but i'm not sure um but or kobe it was it was like one of these big uh nba players and he was considered like the best of all times. And there's a very big, big famous quote where he said, um, they asked him like, oh, you're the best player of all time. Like, or you're playing for the best team or like the team is winning because of you. Um, what, what can you say about that? And he said, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, I'm playing for, I'm playing for a white person. So. I don't know if Michael Jordan said that. I, I'm not sure. I'm not familiar with basketball. Probably not Michael Jordan because he's very <laughs> He stays out of scandals. Uh, yeah, he stays out of it. <laughs> a famous uh, NBA basketball player that said that, that he was like, doesn't matter at the end of the day, I play for a white person. Um, no, that's a good point. Yeah. And I think that that ideology translates to everything. And I, I, do, I generally do believe that, that behind every successful or every opportunity that a minority has had, there was at some point a white person that said yes. So in that sense, it kind of becomes like, we are allowed to be there. And, um, you know, and the, the author I mentioned before, Tochi Onibuchi also mentions that a lot in his articles. He's like, we become the asker because we're asking to be there. We're asking if it's okay to be in that space. Um, so in order to improve race relationships, like I do think that equal opportunity is the best way in order to help that. Because right now we are seen as lesser than. 
and we will continue to be seen as lesser than for years because it's gonna take decades if not centuries for this to, to be fixed for this to happen so until the playing field is all equally distributed then we won't be able to have equal representation so then this perceptions of minority communities are going to continue to happen at the end of the day uh people that are producing all these media contents the way a latina is presented on tv it's the through the lens of a white person and how they think they are mm -hmm. yeah you know um so equal opportunity is number one um education is also a very big one because how are we going to get people into these big places if they don't have an education to begin with um open-minded is a good one uh, learning from each other i think that's so so big like i always say like learning from each other's and each other's cultures is what really makes you a holistic person um no other thing like one of the richness in life is being able to talk to others connect with others hear their stories hear what's up um and you're learning and you're evolving and they are too you know it's a two-way street so listening to each other is a good one i think definitely more listening than talking <laughs> um is also a good one as well but mainly is it being able to create an equal playing field where minorities are not seen as lesser than um, so they have equal opportunity, equal representation, and equal power, basically. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. The playing field needs to be more level and the representation. Yeah, I agree with those points because it's easier to think less of somebody if they're not on your same level. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Do you have any final thoughts you would like to share with viewers? Um, I would say that with viewers, I would say the same thing again, like encourage conversation, you know, I think that most people are willing to talk about it. Um, most of the time, the reason why we don't is because we're scared to be attacked, um, because we, we see that a lot. Uh, we're scared to be attacked, we're scared to be like canceled, you know, whatever, you know. But first is making this big self, big self reflection, reflection that comes in and sitting down with yourself and being like, wow, I am racist. And acknowledging that problem so you can work on it and fix it and educate yourself and also don't be scared to ask questions to your friends you know if you're too scared to ask questions to an expert you know your friend is not going to crucify you <laughs> um so ask questions to your friends be like hey i'm curious about this can you explain this to me i don't understand this uh and that's how you're gonna learn and that's how you're gonna become a better person yeah i really love that point because up until recently i saw people asking questions on social media and like just putting it out there when I feel like they should have just went to their friends because from what I saw, there was a lot of like aggression towards the person yes. asking the question. So right. I agree with you. Ask your friends. They're going to be the best avenue for you to go down. Yeah, but I also want to like do the other side of the coin. And I would never, uh, you know, drag or like shy away a person from just trying to better themselves and learn and asking questions. I mean, maybe. Maybe the question is phrased a little bit wrong and it's, it's ignorant and like that, you take offense to it. But the reason why there's still like, well, one of the reasons why there's still so much racism and hate against minorities is because every time that like somebody tries to, because we've been, we're ethnicities that have been constantly attacked and degraded and dehumanized throughout history. So it's normal that anything that we see, we automatically go up in arms, you know, because we're so used to getting attacked. Um, but don't like attack a person that is genuinely trying to learn. 
that is coming from a place of good, you know? Yeah. And that is that is like just trying to be like, yo, like I don't understand why this is a problem generally. Like help me understand it. And you as a person uh, and as a minority, if you want a better representation for you and your people, you should be able to have that conversation. Like I said, what we're so divided between races and ethnicities like so deeply divided and the only way to fix that is to like break down these barriers that we have and how are we going to do that by educating each other by talking to each other don't turn what what is a simple conversation into a fight yeah you know because that's how, we, that's how we've gone to war good point yeah just talk just talk and ask <laughs> those are amazing points well, thank you so much for joining us today, Maria, and we really look forward to having you on our next episode with you coming up for season two. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, take care. You too. We have covered some heavy content today, and mental health is important no matter who you are or where you're at in life. So before rolling credits, there'll be mental health resources to call or text. Tune in for our next episode discussing race relations and the sexualization of Asian women in the U.S., with Callie Estocapio. Thank you for watching the Manila Rose podcast. And remember, it's not sexy, it's racist. Take care.